For me, grit is the outcome of having clarity about one's values. I've shared what my core values are of family, of wellness, integrity, impact. I know what's important to me. I'm confident around what fuels me. And as a result, this leads to clarity of purpose and drives effort. And when you have clarity of purpose and you're able to drive consistent effort, that's what's typically characterized as grit. And that's what grit means to me. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now onto this episode. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jubin. Pumped to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, man. Thank you. I like to get these things started by reading my guests' backgrounds back to them. So if you will indulge me, I will read your background back to you. And please, I tend to make mistakes in this part. So feel free to fill in the blanks where I inevitably do. Sounds good. Okay. So BA in poli-sci from UC Davis, my second alma mater on the show. The first was Cameron Deitch from Atlassian. Then you went on to get your MBA in marketing from the University of San Francisco. And that kicked off an 18 and a half going on 19 year run at Salesforce in 2002, maybe 20 years at this point. So far, so good. Yeah. So graduated from UC Davis, thought I wanted to get into sports marketing. So went down that path for a couple of years at the Air Force Academy as a civilian and then at Cal for two years and then yeah, back to business school. And then from business school, you went to Salesforce. You started out as a sales rep and you did that for a year. You then became an account executive on the small business team for two years, then an AE on the general business team for one year, then a regional manager for the commercial sales team. And in the same vein, uh, manager of sales development, assuming like the BDR or lead generation team. You did that for 10 months. It looked like you moved to Toronto for that role. You got it. And then you became a regional manager for the commercial sales team, small business. And you did that for about 10 months, they promoted you again. seems like you're doing something right. Then you went on to be the regional manager for commercial sales and small business. You did that for three years. Then you were the CVP, corporate vice president of sales for emerging and small business for a year, AVP of commercial sales for two years, senior AVP of commercial sales for six months. Then you did so well, assumingly that you just kept getting promoted so damn quick. You then became the senior AVP of commercial sales for SMB, did that for seven months. Then SVP of commercial sales, for six years, God forbid you do a job more than a year and a half in Salesforce before they promote you. Yeah, and a lot of those are promotions within the same role. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And then most recently, you are the SVP of Global ISV Partners, and you've been doing that for three years. What did I miss, Mike? Well, that's a lot of acronyms you just went through there. Yeah, I think you framed it well. I also think you touched upon it. Back in 2006, I made my transition from an individual contributor to leadership when I made the move to Toronto to help open up that office. That was an incredible experience. Best professional and personal experience of my life was that time up there. So let's take it back to you leaving the University of San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. How did you stumble on Salesforce at the time? And maybe before I even do that, let yeah. me do this. Can I give a quick bio on Salesforce before you joined? What was the upstart of Salesforce? And then contextualize that with when you joined. And then maybe we could rewind it to how'd you find Salesforce? Is that fair? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, cool. So in 99, Benioff left his role as the vice president of the database organization within Oracle. 
And he spent 13 years there and he started Salesforce. In 2000, one year later, he went to Siebel's conference. And for those listening who are in my generation may not even know who Siebel is, but they were the predecessor to Salesforce. And Benioff himself basically held up an anti-software sign. Yeah, no software. No software, right? Software meaning like a deployment. Client server, yeah. Exactly. And I was reading through articles of what people were saying of that move in 2000. Business Insider called Salesforce the ant at the picnic. And so Benioff's company, Salesforce, was really built around one main idea, that software should be delivered 24-7 to people over the cloud. And he was really an avant-garde at the time for even thinking something like that. And Salesforce was really the first company to do something like this. And in that time, in the late 90s, companies like Oracle and SAP, Siebel were selling software to businesses that to actually be like installed and updated on premise, something now that we think is kind of crazy. That was 2000. Yeah. Okay. You joined in 2002. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. So the way you described Salesforce at the time was really interesting, right? And it's, I'm sure it's a lot of the companies in, in your portfolio that are going through the same thing of, of really trying to find product market fit. And as an SDR in 2002, I mean, the types of conversations I was having with customers is wild in hindsight, right? It was wild at the time, but it was everything from executives just trying to understand what this software as a service was then to how they access their data when they're on a plane to even some people calling in and wanting to book Mark's dog, Koa, for a birthday party. Like it was crazy. I remember going on sales calls at that time where I would have to check out a laptop in a projector with me and make sure that the, <laughs> that the prospect had internet access, right? Today, it just assumed you know, all these things. And so that was what we were really up against at that time is really helping customers transition from this on-premise software and all the legacy costs around that to this new world of cloud. And it was really a you know, fascinating, exciting time to, to be in this industry. How many people were at the organization when you joined in rough ballpark? How much revenue was being done? Uh, it's about uh, 150 people and about 3 million. 3 million. Yeah. Okay. So how'd you find it? And I actually want to touch on some of the objections that you were getting in a little bit, but yeah. how did you find this job at the time? Was it even attractive? Was it a place that people wanted to work? Tell me more. I mean, I wish I had some grand plan that I could share with you. <laughs> it, it's not that at all. When I was at USF studying for my MBA, I was in a telecommunications class and we were doing a SWOT analysis on application service providers. And the three companies that we researched, one was Salesforce, one was a company called Upshot, which was then acquired by Siebel, right? Which was then acquired by Oracle. And the other was NetLedger, which then became NetSuite and then was acquired by Oracle, right? So those are the companies that we were doing research on. And so as part of that process, I had the opportunity to learn more about Salesforce. They were based in San Francisco. Salesforce was solving a problem that I had when, you know, back in my time at Cal when I was doing athletic marketing over there and trying to drive ticket sales and sell sponsorships just around using databases. We were using a FileMaker Pro database at Cal where we had to ask who was on the database to be able to access it. And then here we were doing research on ASPs and it didn't matter. They had solved that problem. And so it was a challenge that resonated with me. And as I was getting ready to graduate from school, I had the very strategic thought process of, huh, well, my fiance at the time, Katie, who's now my wife, she worked for The Gap, which was located in the city. Salesforce was located in the city. I wanted to live in San Francisco. So <laughs> I applied for a role at Salesforce, was totally naive on enterprise software, and started in the best job I possibly could. And that's the SDR role. And you know, for any of the young salespeople out there, it is the best job to start at at a company. You get asked every 
type of question and you are presented with all types of opportunities to be entrepreneurial and creative and really to learn on the fly and to grow. So that was my entree into it. I could not agree with you more that it is absolutely the best place to start your sales career as an SDR. I did it. You did it. Not only do you learn skills that I think are transferable throughout your career, like cold calling, cold emailing, having to work Sunday night to figure out who I'm going to prospect into Monday. I literally still take those skills with me today. And you learn about the nuts and bolts of what your customers are saying. What are their objections? What are your prospects saying? You're like the really the tip of the spear. That's an invaluable experience. You're taking me back in time. So there's a couple of funny experiences. Mark Benioff, he would call into the 800 in no software line just to understand how we were positioning <laughs> and how responsive we were. So that was fun. And then we would spend a lot of time with our CMO at the time and, and share with him the questions that were being asked, the objections, the, you know, how we're positioning it. And a lot of that turned into the product marketing uh, positioning for Salesforce. So definitely a fun role. Yeah, no doubt. And talk about like teaching you what grit and resilience means. Like there's no harder job. When you joined at 3 million, so when I think about product market fit, and you had mentioned this, typically product market fit is defined by you have a product in a market that the customer wants, and you know that the customer wants it when there's a transaction of dollars to software or services or whatever it might be. 3 million in is usually a pretty good leading indicator that there's a strong connection between dollars and software that's being exchanged. Did you feel that way? Like, I know your business acumen was just being formed yeah. at that time, but how obvious was it in hindsight at that time when you joined? Does the question make sense? Yeah, it totally does. At that point in time, there were enterprise companies using Siebel, just massive telecommunication companies at one end of the market. And at the other end of the market, there were small businesses using a contact manager called Act. And so it was really validating both ends of the market that business could be done differently, that a small business owner didn't need to physically have his or her own data on site with them or on their laptop. There was value to be able to access that data from anywhere. And then an enterprise company really validating that accessing software over the internet was secure and scalable. So there was that dynamic. And then the other dynamic was Was Salesforce just going to be a one-trick pony and just be Salesforce automation? Or were we going to be able to really validate this as a delivery model and expand into uh, service or expand into marketing or expand into analytics and expand into being able to track the entire customer lifecycle? That was really the, the leap that was being made. And again, I can remember being in company meetings where we're all in one conference room, right? It's kind of hard to think of now, right? There's 54,000 employees. We still do global all hands calls, but it's different. But all being in one conference room and Mark getting up at the front of the room and talking about the S-Force API, how this is going to provide Salesforce with the ability to connect to all different types of systems. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is he talking about? (laughs) I'm talking to customers who are pronouncing CRM as CRIM. Yeah, I'm really interested in your CRIM solution. And he's talking about an API. What, What is it? This guy is nuts. And that's why I'm in sales. And that's why he is where he is. He's always been great at focusing Salesforce on executing today and painting the vision for where it's going. And that, that was the leap that we were trying to make at that time. Was the objection that you would get in the early days, not do we need a CRIM or a CRM, <laughs> right? Yeah. Is this the right architecture yeah. that we want to be able to consume your solution? Is that the real objection? Like it should be delivered as a SaaS product. Because every organization is trying to have a, you know, a central view of their customer. And in those days, it was just 
all over the organization, Excel spreadsheets, Act databases, different legacy solutions, like it was everywhere. And so really what we were selling at that time was security. If I'm going to give you my data and it's going to be housed somewhere off site, is that going to be secure? What was one thing that we spent a lot of time on. The other thing was accessibility. It's kind of hard to believe now because we all have our phones and laptops and Wi-Fi is everywhere. But at that point, really the, the main question that came up was, how do I access this data when I'm offline, when I'm on the road doing a sales trip, when I'm on an airplane? Like that came up all the time. And when I'm on a plane, how can I have my data so I can plan for the next day or type in the notes from those interactions? It was literally that tactical. And I'd say nine out of 10 conversations were around security, accessibility. The industry knew that they needed a central view of, the, of their data. They just were doing it in inefficient ways before. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation that I had on this show with Carlos Delatore, the CRO of Trip Actions. And I was asking him, like, how do you evaluate new opportunities? And one of his three key pillars was product. And he said, look, I can always get into a bits and bytes conversation around a product. What's much more interesting is an architecture. So if you can give me a product that's differentiated at the architecture level rather than at the feature and functionality level, that's something that you can't really compete against. And clearly that seemed to have worked pretty well for Salesforce. When you started in 2002, there was 3 million of ARR of revenue. How quickly did this thing go? It went really quickly. I mean, I can remember when I moved into our small business team, I remember sitting down with Rob Acker, who was my VP at the time. I think we had six small business salespeople in North America at the time. And I remember him saying, yeah, I just got out of a meeting with Mark and he wants me to triple the size of the team. I don't know if there's a demand for this, right? And it literally, it was like a rocket ship. When I joined that SMB team, that team grew exponentially over the next you know, several years that I was in that role to the point where now there's thousands of small business salespeople at Salesforce. And so it really took off. That's incredible. So you joined in 2002. This thing starts taking off. Dreamforce, the first one ever, 2003, which is kind of crazy to think about. It was 150 people and it was doing a few million of revenue. Then the next year you decide we're going to throw a conference, a user conference. Dreamforce was in 2003. This is three years later after Benioff was trolling Siebel's conference, okay? By the end of 2003, Salesforce was doing 51 million of revenue. And clearly, I'm not very uh, good on the history side of these things, so I'm sure you can correct me here. But my understanding is that it was about 51 million in 2003 when Salesforce filed for IPO. During the 2004 IPO, the company was doing about 96 million. So in just that year, it almost doubled its ARR. Yeah. And the valuation was about a 10, 11X valuation of ARR. So about a 1.1 billion valuation. And then it just started exploding in 2005. He opened the App Exchange. That's when this thing became insane. Tell me more about that time. So in 2003, when the first Dreamforce was happening, you were- I was an account executive then and I- Distinctly remember the first Dreamforce, I think it was at the West in St. Francis. And what stood out to me about that was the expo, right? The partners that were starting to emerge around Salesforce to help complement the technology and differentiate. That's one thing that stands out about that first Dreamforce. And the other thing that stands out is connecting customers to customers and customers to prospects and how impactful that is in terms of selling. I can distinctly remember that was the first time that I really had the opportunity to do that in that setting and how that really started to help me close more business. 
that's what I think of when I think of that first Dreamforce, as well as people streaming out of the first Dreamforce keynote. And it was probably members of the analyst community just sharing, like, this is a real company. Because I think at that point, again, we were still really trying to prove the value of software as a service, or the cloud at that time. And they figured out you weren't the ant at the picnic. Right, yeah. We weren't the ant at the picnic anymore, or the gnat on the back of the elephant. (laughs) (laughs) So can I ask you a kind of unfair question, and and, and you answer this or not, but a lot of the time, I give our early stage companies advice about hiring folks from organizations like Salesforce today, right? And you could put Salesforce or pick your other big company. The reason that I give the advice, which is, hey, just proceed with caution before hiring someone from one of these organizations, is that it's really hard to know if they themselves were very good or if they were just in an incredible environment. So the question specifically is in those days when you're on this AE team that's just skyrocketing, the business is going crazy, was everyone blowing out their number? When you look to your left and right, how did you know who was actually good? Yeah, I heard you ask Bob Fratty a similar question when you interviewed him, and the answer is no. Even being on a rocket ship at that time, everyone is not successful. And there's a couple of themes that emerge that I would encourage all the sales leaders and salespeople on this call to think about. And for me, it's I look at it as when I'm hiring salespeople, I'm a big proponent of using a chronological interview. And I heard Bob talk about it because I, I learned it from Bob <laughs> when he was a leader at Salesforce and, and we were peers in the commercial sales organization. But chronological interview is truth serum and it's experience-based, right? And what happens is when you walk through and you have a candidate describe their role, their responsibilities and how success was measured, and you have them talk about what their proudest accomplishment was, and you have them talk through, you know, knowing what they know now, what would they have done differently? You start seeing the themes around how they think and how they were successful and whether it was luck in terms of what drove success or whether there was a playbook and a repeatable approach that they were leveraging or how they would build executive relationships and how they would collaborate, how resourceful the candidates are, how they would work with other team members, how they would engage with their leader. So there's certain themes that come out there. So that's number one. And then the second theme that I spend a lot of time on with our team is I call it, you show me, don't tell me. And that's turning everything into the deliverable. So I'm sure, Jim, when when you're doing interviews and you're hiring a sales team, everyone can tell a great story about a deal that they worked on and how they were the hero and brought the deal across the finish line, et cetera. And that's great, but I want someone to show me. I want to see in terms of the business case, like show me an example of the mutual plan that you put together that you and the customer were, or the prospect were aligned around. Show me an example of a recap that you've sent. Talk me through an example of how you multi-threaded a, an engagement and had different members of your team, maybe on the product side or an executive in your team and yourself and how you engage at different levels of a company. You know, show me an example of, a, of an executive deck that you provided your champion that helped you sell when you're not on the call or in person. It's those types of things that I love to dig into with when I'm hiring. Because that shows me, does someone have a playbook? Do they have a point of view? Do they have the tools? Have they done it? Or can they just talk and they don't sweat the details and they really don't know how to repeat the success that they've had? Yeah, I want to dive much deeper into both of those points because I think they're really insightful. Before I do, I have one more question on your background and then we'll go straight into it. You took your first manager job four years or so into Salesforce. So let's call it you were like 30 years old-ish at the time. Is that right? That's about right. Yeah. Okay. It was in Toronto. And you had mentioned that your evaluation framework for going to Salesforce in the first place was you wanted to be in San Francisco because your fiance, now wife, 
was in San Francisco. Yeah. When you evaluated the opportunity and looked at the opportunity cost, what was your decision-making like? As an example, for me, I'm still at the point in my life where any decision that I make is based on my career. I don't have very many things tying me down. So when Palo Alto Network said, Jubin, you, you go to Chicago, I went to Chicago. I didn't even hesitate. But other things come up in life that hinder that. So like, what was your thought process at the time? Obviously, it was a great opportunity and your first chance at leadership to move to a different country and, and go across the country. Yeah, so a couple themes. So one thing that led me to sales leadership was what I realized when I was an individual contributor that I enjoyed the process of selling and I enjoyed collaborating with my teammates on deals more than the attention that I received when I won a strategic customer. So that some introspection led me to, all right, there's maybe a different path that might be a better fit for me. And that was the leadership path. That was number one. Number two, when I thought about the opportunity in Toronto, I looked at it a few different ways. So first, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, I grew up in the Bay Area. I went to UC Davis, which is 90 minutes from the Bay Area. I had never really spent any time significantly away from home. And so this was an opportunity to go to another country. Canada is not the 51st state for all of you listening. It is very different. Go to another country to start a new office and to build something. I love to build. And this was an opportunity to build out a new team, build out a new office, bring the culture that, that we had kind of honed in San Francisco to a new organization and grow as a leader and grow as a person. And it was a tremendous opportunity for myself and my wife. My wife was able to transfer with the gap as well to Toronto. And again, we wouldn't have done the move if we hadn't been able to make it work for both of us. And so, yeah, it was a great experience. So on point one, are you saying when a wind wire would be sent out and it would say, you know, Mike Wolf and team closed a giant deal with XYZ customer, you appreciated the process of getting that deal across the finish line more than you did the accolade of someone telling you, great job. Yeah, and it's just the way I'm wired. I see really successful salespeople who like to continue down that individual contributor path. They like the public recognition. And it's just something I, I don't know. We need to spend some time with a psychologist to understand why, but I, I don't like it. I like to celebrate the success of others, right? That's more important to me. I get more excited when my peers are successful than when I am. And it led me to maybe there's a different path and the sales leadership path is definitely something that I, that I enjoy because it's the building of teams, it's the enabling of teams, it's the alignment around objectives, helping grow people's careers, helping make customers successful, and it's been a great fit. So as you go through this insane promotion path, yeah. one of the things that I find tricky is building credibility in a new environment. So mm -hmm. like every time you hit the reset button, not only do you have a new job that you have to learn new responsibilities, I think that's exciting for someone yeah. like you. Like that's the point of doing it. You're out ahead of your skis a little bit and that's a good place for you to be because you want to learn. But you also probably have a new manager in most of those cases. You have a different set of team and organization. Bob talks about like change management in an organization, in a growing organization. That's one of the things that I think about as an individual growing within an organization is how do you adapt to that change, especially in the context of those around you? How do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's been one of the pieces of the secret sauce at Salesforce is we have been such a monthly driven business, right? The mantra of make every month. And for you to be able to make every month, you have to be constantly evolving and changing and and adapting and growing in different ways. And that's just part of the core DNA of us as a company and something I've really internalized that being comfortable being uncomfortable, enjoying the shades of gray, not trying to make everything black and white, 
trying to take the leaders that I've worked with and take different parts of their style and kind of weave it into the fabric of my style. That's just stuff I enjoy. And as you asked the question, literally all the faces of the leaders I've worked with the years are kind of flashing through my mind. And imagine for the listeners, you have those same experiences, right? There's some leaders that you work with that are tremendous and you love working with them and you take what you love about them and you incorporate into your style. And then there's some that maybe haven't been the most effective and you take what you didn't like and you keep that away from your style and you take the one or two or, you know, the kind of the pieces of what you appreciate about them and you, and you do incorporate it. And that's just part of the journey that we're all on, right? In terms of growing and evolving and adapting and again, trying to go to where the industry is going versus thinking that you know everything. And I've done it. You know, I went to Toronto. I helped start that office. I know it all, Jubin. I don't need to learn anything new. No, that's like the farthest thing from my mind. It's like you, you have to be continuing to learn and curious and constantly evolving. And by my count, you've been promoted over 10 times at Salesforce. Which was the biggest leap? Which was the one where when you joined, you really struggled to kind of get your bearings? Is there one that stands out? It's different, right? So when moving to Toronto, like that's a huge personal move. And the business side was easy, but the personal side of the logistics of being in a different country, that took some time to work through. On the business front, the most different move that I made was when I made the move from our commercial sales business to running the global ISV sales team here three years ago, just because it's a totally different motion, right? When the first 15 years of my career, I'm focused on direct selling model. And now I'm focused on recruiting partners who sell on or around the Salesforce platform. And that's an indirect motion. Like that's a very different motion that takes a lot of learning to understand and so many people that who have built this over the years and spending the time to learn from them and learning from our partners and learning from the members of my team who have been in this ISV and app exchange business for so long. That's been the enjoyable part about getting up to speed here. It's funny, as I listen to you say this and I reflect on some of my own experiences, do you think that when there is a career-driven decision that impacts you so personally and you go through such a immense personal growth process, do you think that informs you being a better person and a more effective worker? Specifically, when I went to Chicago, I moved to Chicago in the middle of November. I'd never been to Chicago. I didn't know a single person in Chicago. I didn't even own a coat or a jacket because I've been in California yeah. for so long. And it took four weeks for my furniture to get there. So I was on an air mattress. And that process was an absolute grind. And I thought it was actually taking away from me as an effective worker. But in that process of maturation and learning that I can actually do pretty well outside of my comfort zone, I think it made me more confident and effective in my job. And I've never thought about it that way. I totally agree with you, right? Because you, you get out of your comfort zone. You break the norms that you had. You break through any limitations that maybe you thought about yourself. Again, it's living in that comfort zone of being uncomfortable. That was my experience when I moved to Toronto. And again, I, I look back on that experience and that's when I feel like I've, you know, one of the opportunities where I grew the most as a professional and definitely one of the opportunities where I grew the most personally, both in terms of some of the friendships that I made that I still keep in touch with but then sometimes things don't always go the way you plan. When we were up in Toronto, our now 13-year-old daughter, Samantha, was born. And that's supposed to be the happiest moment of everyone's life. And sometimes things don't go as planned. And, you know, knock on wood, Sam is doing fantastic now. She's a happy, incredibly smart teenager now doing virtual learning. But at the time when she was born, like she was in the NICU for the first six weeks of her, of her life. And when you think about, you know, that experience of, you know, my wife and I both from California up in Toronto, where we had friends, but we didn't have any family up there. 
and you're going through that powerful of, a, of experience, that can knock you for some pretty massive perspective really quickly. So to your point, yeah, like those experiences make you a better person. And I think they've made me a better leader because I just have a much greater appreciation for the journey that we're all on, the joint experiences that we have. And I'm able to kind of juxtapose that against the business. While we're all wired in sales to make every month and every quarter is a priority, don't get me wrong, right? I'm extremely competitive and I don't like it when I miss a number, but there's perspective there. There are no bad days when you've lived through an experience like that. And I think these experiences make you better. They help you grow, help you evolve, and and you emerge stronger from them. I'd love to explore that a little bit more with you. You joined Salesforce with 150 employees. There's now, what, 60? It's close to 55,000, yeah. 55,000 employees. You joined when there is 3 million in revenue. There's now 21 billion in revenue as of the most recent filing. The market cap is 235 billion. A lot of things went right along the way. And I think you look at your LinkedIn and Jubin oversimplifying it just makes it seem like everything went right. What else went wrong? What are some moments in your mind that really stand out to you of, oh boy, this didn't work personally. This didn't work professionally. This didn't work as an individual, Mike, or within broader Salesforce, an existential moment of, oh crap. Anything that sticks out to you? Again, that's the journey that we're all on, right? And as you ask that question, the themes that are coming to mind for me are, you talk about the massive amount of hiring that that you go through when you're in this type of growth. And I think of those people that we didn't hire, right? And probably we missed on and who would have been tremendous additions to Salesforce. You know, I think of the moments from a deal perspective, I'm a big fan of celebrating the wins, but it's the losses that are the ones that stick in your mind and the ones that you kind of rehash when you're in the shower and you're standing in line at the supermarket thinking about, gosh, thought that we were in the position to win it, but we you know, boxed out by this one individual who never really engaged, but we thought that we had him or her surrounded and could get them over the hump. Or I think about it from a success perspective where you thought the customer has signed and we thought that we had the right partner engaged to help make them successful. However, maybe they were oversold during the cycle and we weren't able to meet the expectations that they had from an implementation perspective. So those are the themes that come to mind for me as I think through your question. Yeah, no, it's good. Okay. And I'm excited to get to this. So unbeknownst to you, I talked to a bunch of people that work at Salesforce and a bunch of people that have worked with you and worked for you. And the way that I'd like to approach this segment with the time that we have remaining is that you wrote an article earlier this year, 18 leadership lessons learned in 18 years at Salesforce. Okay. And you mentioned a couple of them earlier, which is why I was excited. And I also tabled it for this segment. I picked out some of these and I would love to dive in deeper on the ones that I picked out, if that's okay with you. And then dealer's choice, if there's any that I don't talk about that you want to make sure we do, let's do it. Fair? Yeah, perfect. All right. Awesome. The first one that I wanted to talk about was culture doesn't eat strategy for breakfast. Values do. What do you mean? It kind of gets to the point of this podcast around grit. But for me, people are able to exhibit grit when they're clearer in terms of what their values are. You know, a lot of times we talk about the importance of culture in an organization, and it absolutely is. But when you peel the layers back on that, it's really what are the values that are driving that culture? And that's what I spend a lot of time on personally, and that we spend a lot of time on culturally with our team, is to be clear in terms of what our values are. And are those values 
different from company values. So these are Mike Wolf's leadership principles as opposed to Salesforce's company values. It's just Mike Wolf. I know that my core values are family, wellness, integrity, and impact. Nothing is more important to me you know, than my family. I can't be the best parent, husband, if I am not focused on my mental wellness, physical wellness, spiritual wellness. Integrity is paramount to me. Like I want to work with people who are honest and truthful and treat people with respect. And then impact, right? I love investing my time and energy on things that can have an impact, whether it's in Salesforce or in my personal life. And those are very different than, you know, Salesforce's values, right? Success, trust, innovation. Like there's the company values and there's the personal values. And so as a team, we spend a lot of time when we're interviewing and when we're building our team, making sure that people have clarity in terms of what their personal values are. Because once we understand that, then it's really easy to align and understand where everyone's coming from and find the purpose that we all need to exhibit the effort and energy to drive towards our, our personal objectives. And so this is like when the going gets tough and you have your own sets of values, values bleed through in times of difficulty, not in times of success. And so basically when things start to go sideways, your team can always count on you to be consistent with these four pillars. And so when there's a decision to be made and they're not sure which way they're going to go or you're going to go, I should say, you're going to lean on these and they can count on you to be consistent in these values. Absolutely. And these are values that I've socialized across our team. They know what my core values are, number one. And number two, I'm not sure if you've talked about this at all with other I don't think Bob got into it with you when you had him on, but I mean, Salesforce also has this planning mechanism and framework called the V2 Mom, which stands for V, for vision, values, methods, obstacles, and metrics. And so we're really clear at the company level what's important to us. And every employee at Salesforce has a V2 Mom and every team does. And so for our global ISV team, we have a V2 Mom that clearly articulates what our vision is, what we want to do, what our values are, what's important about it, our methods, how we're going to do it. And those methods are all prioritized and transparent. So the team knows, all right, here's our objective and the value set for how we were going to operate as a team. And here are the priorities that we're, we're going to make investments from a dollar, people, and time perspective. And I've just found this framework to be extremely helpful in terms of providing the transparency needed to drive alignment and success and to eliminate a lot of the politics and kind of time wasted on wondering what's on someone's mind. Okay. The second one, be the type of leader that people fight to work with. So this one in my socialization with your team, others on your team, your peers, et cetera, this is pretty much the number one thing that came up is that I want to work for Mike. So it seems like you're living this one pretty well. Tell me more. I just think that's the ultimate compliment for everyone on this call who's in a leadership role and for those that are individual contributor roles, if you're a, a leader, it's the ultimate compliment when people say that I want to fight to work with that individual. And so there's no secret around how to do this and there's no playbook I'm going to share with you around how to do it. It's more of, from an authenticity perspective, I just want to encourage everyone to be themselves. As leaders, if you're trying to be someone else, people can see through that immediately. You had Bob Brady on. I love Bob. Bob is an incredible leader. He's an amazing presenter. I can never be Bob Braddy, but I can be the best version of myself. And I like to laugh. I like to make fun of myself. You know, we had a silly talent show at Salesforce as we're all going through this pandemic. 
And a couple of us, you know, we wrote a funny skit and the team asked me to perform as an office plant to a Les Mis song. <laughs> Absolutely, I'll do that type of stuff. It's fun, right? So it's be authentic, be transparent. You know, we talked about that. I, I spend a lot of time focused on the why, right? There's so many leaders out there that focus on what, like, here's what we need to do, right? If you focus on just what you need to do, no one thinks for themselves. So I'm a big proponent of focusing on the context. Why are we trying to do something? I want to leverage the collective genius of all the people on the team to help us understand how to get there. Communication, I think, is another big piece of this. I'm a big proponent of keeping people on the journey. I think of it as a roller coaster. I often share with people on the team, hey, if you want to sit on the platform and I'm going to go on the ride and you just want me to tell you when I get back from that ride where we're at, I'm happy to do that. However, wouldn't it be more fun if you were on the roller coaster with us? And so I'm just, I'm big on, on communication. I think the other thing that you probably hear from people is just roll up your sleeves and be part of the work, right? You kind of hit on the gist of this question a little bit earlier in terms of your advice to startups who, who might be looking at hiring someone from a large company like Salesforce. And I think what you didn't get at is, I think it's really easy to be at a company like Salesforce you have 50,000 people, and maybe the work that you're investing in is more internal focused than actually doing the work and being engaged with customers. And I would say that, you know, I don't ask the team to do anything that I won't do myself. And then the last piece here is coaching. And one of the things that I love most about being in a sales role is I think with coaching, there's accountability both ways. And one of the things that we used to do in, on our commercial sales team was we would track the number of coaching interactions that our leaders would have with account executives on our team. And as a part of our monthly all hands calls, just as important as our sales metrics, I would share, here are the total number of coaching interactions that we had last month. Here's the leaderboard from a regional manager perspective on who's doing the most coaching. Here are the AEs that are receiving the most coaching. And this is great. It's all about that culture of learning and evolving that we talked about a little bit earlier. And then the last thing that I like to do, you've got to listen to the language of your team. You know, I get concerned when someone says to me, hey, Mike, how are you doing against your number? Like, whoa, my number? No, 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 this is our number, right? And so I, a lot of correction of someone say, how are you doing against your number? I'll be like, our, and like, yes, how are we doing against our number? Or the other theme that, that I'm sure some sales leaders on this call here is, you know, it pains me when a member of my team will approach me and say, hey, Mike, I don't know where I stand. That is a failure of leadership right? Everyone should always know where they stand. That's telling me that we're not doing enough coaching. We're not having enough transparent conversations around what we're doing well, what we need to improve upon and aligned around what we want to do from a career perspective. So those are some things I invest in. It's all under the umbrella of, I want to be the type of leader people fight to work with. And I want our leaders on the team to be those types of people as well. That's the ultimate compliment. Yeah. I love that. The coaching pieces particularly really resonates with me. Like I was a manager, like pretty young, a BDR manager at 23. And my boss I always used to say, when I would present the data, we created this many meetings this quarter, I would use I a lot. And it was just subconscious, but I would say I. And every single time I used the word I in any context of any conversation in the business at all with anybody, including just him, he'd say, wait. Yeah. And I'm in the most individually contributor role ever at Kleiner right now. I still just say we. There's nobody else on my team. I don't even have a team anymore. And I'm just, it's so ingrained in me because of the like consistent feedback and coaching that I used to get. We, 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 that it works. There's no other way around it. Quick question on the type of leader that people fight to work with. Sometimes I think of this as like a player's coach. Do you ever think of a downside to that? What I mean by this is that I've seen leaders like in our portfolio that are the player's coach 
of course the reps love to work for him or her because when it's time to grow the business two and a half X and they don't chop territories required to get to the point because they want to make the reps happier. They don't want to make them upset. Of course the reps love them. They're making, you know, 200% of their quota when really they should be at 140% and we should be hiring more reps. Yeah, totally. And again, there's a couple of themes that come back to me for that. So yeah, you have to make tough decisions. Sometimes there are decisions that you need to make to make sure that you need to kind of reallocate the investment to match the intent of the business. And again, I've found that this culture of being transparent and again, keeping the team on the journey with you is just as important that direction as well. I found that people may not like the decision when there's that type of news. However, they respect it because they know that I'm being transparent, I'm being communicative. And again, I'm focused around the context. Here's why we are making this decision. Here's why you know, we're going to put four reps in that territory versus having two next year. Or right now we're overweighted from a leadership perspective here and I want to take that investment and invest in more account executives somewhere else. And those are just a few examples of where these themes come into play. Okay, next one. I wish I could spend an hour just on that. Your team is always watching you for cues. Never let your highs get too high, nor your lows get too low. Go ahead. That was a lesson I learned from one of my mentors, Tony Rodoni, who you should have him on an upcoming podcast. And that phrase, it takes me back to when I was a regional manager in our San Mateo office here at Salesforce. And it was the end of the month. And I went downstairs to grab a bite to eat. And Tony was sitting at a table. He asked me to come over and he said, hey, Mike, how's the month going? And I said, ah, it's not going as well as I want. And Tony's great at phrasing things. And he said, hey, Mike, may I share with you some unsolicited feedback? I said, of course, Tony. You know, what's up? He said, your team is always queuing off you. And I encourage you never to let your highs get too high or your lows get too low. And it was a great lesson that the team always is watching you, right? If you're going nuts on something, they're going to look at you like, oh my God, Mike is freaking out. I should be freaking out too. Or if Mike isn't showing enough energy, I hate talking about myself in the third person. If I'm not sharing enough energy, then maybe I don't need to bring the effort or energy or enthusiasm to it. And so I've always tried to pride myself on just being even keel and trying to keep the team focused on really what's important. And again, celebrating the journey that we're all on versus the highs and lows that naturally happen over the course of, of any fiscal year. Yeah, I love that one. Great talent attracts incredible opportunities. Talk to recruiters to know how good you have it where you are. I just think that we're all extremely lucky. I am extremely fortunate. You are as well when you think about the the organizations that we work with. And I just close my eyes and think of all the listeners on this podcast right now. And, And I think about how fortunate we all are to be working at the organizations that we are. And my point around that phrase is that extremely talented people are always going to have incredible opportunities. And Again, it goes back to what we talked about a little bit before from a value perspective. If you're at an organization where your values are valued and they're in alignment, you're in alignment with what you're doing and what the company is trying to accomplish, you're probably in a pretty good spot. And I've always found myself, you know, obviously I've been here for 18 years. When I do have conversations with recruiters, it's always a great reminder of how well aligned and how good I have it. And that's what I was trying to get at when I, with that commentary. I love that. Also, atypical advice from a leader, for sure. Okay, next one. Chronological interviews are like truth serum. If you don't use them, learn how. And you mentioned this earlier. 
one of the things that the head of sales at Shopify, Lauren does, is in the interview, he says, tell me your life story. And they say, what? He just says, tell me your life story. And this made me think of that, which is like, you tell me how you got here today. And through that story, the way that you define it, I can have insights on what it is that makes you tick. And how did you decide to make the decisions that you did along the way? Is that how you meant it or? Yeah, twofold. So the tell me your life story is interesting. And again, I have great respect for Shopify and the business that they're building. I have a number of peers on that team. I have found the chronological interview to be an incredible way to understand an individual's life story and to train a leadership team on how to scale and repeat a successful interview process. So when I think about the questions from a chronological interview, and I talked about a little bit about them before, but you're looking for the themes from what you're hearing and the repeatability of it, right? So if someone has worked at, let's call it three roles, in each of the roles, I'm asking the individual to describe to me the role, the responsibilities, and how their success was measured. And then you quit, you're juxtaposing against, you know, once you have that insight, well, tell me what your proudest accomplishment was. And you can start seeing either connections to what they were being asked to do, right? So if you're hiring for a sales role and they're describing how they were measured, and then you talk about what's your proudest accomplishment, if the proudest accomplishment isn't aligned with what that role was, it leads to other questions that you can ask there to understand, all right, well, how defined is this individual's playbook? Or are they actually thinking about doing something else with their career and they just haven't realized it themselves yet? And so literally you can walk through this chronological interview process of you know, talking about your proudest accomplishment, you know, knowing what you know now, walk me through what you do differently. So now you're learning from that candidate, their ability to learn and evolve and their genuine curiosity. In terms of if I were to call your current or former boss, how would he or she describe what you're doing well and what your areas of improvement are? So now we're starting to get some self-awareness out of that. There's about five questions you go through and you start seeing these themes pop up in the different roles that the candidate has. And it really ties together a nice picture. And the best thing is you can train this method across your leadership team, which then makes the hiring repeatable, more consistent. So, you know, I talked about opening our Toronto hub. We're finding candidates that are more in line with our ideal profile and similar to what we've been doing in other parts of, of the globe. So that's what I'm trying to get out there. No, that makes sense. And those questions are actually posted online. And so as are the 18 principles. And so I am going to have the producers put those in the show notes. I love this one. Your playbook is a representation of past success. Future success is determined by constant reinvention. So often what I see is when we're recruiting a CRO, a VP of sales to come in to run one of our early stage companies, revenue organizations, they come in with a playbook. And this playbook is the playbook that they had from like, the last company that they did, this is a different company with different people, with a different market, with a different strategy. Is that what you meant? 100%, right? And that's what I talk about when I think about the transition I made from the direct sales world to you know, leading our global ISV team. I mean, I spent the first 45 days interviewing over 100 people, whether members of the team, customers, partners, broader members of the team, and just trying to understand how the team was perceived, what they thought success looked like for us, just trying to understand what this is, right? And so I think sometimes people make the mistake of taking their old playbook and just immediately applying it to a new role that you're in. That's a huge mistake, right? It's a perspective that you're bringing that you should build upon and evolve wherever you go. That's number one. Number two, I think about the massive, you know, obviously we're in the midst of a pandemic right now. Also in, in the June timeframe with the murder of George Floyd, that caused us to totally rewrite the playbook in terms of how we're thinking of what have we been doing in terms of building our team, 
what are we doing from a psychological safety perspective? Like I'd never even thought of the term psychological safety before. How do we rethink our recruiting? How do we rethink our onboarding? How do we rethink the retention of our team, right? And so again, what I'm emphasizing there is what got you here is not going to get you there and you constantly need to evolve. Whether you're an entrepreneur at a current company like I am, or you're fortunate enough to be an experienced salesperson to take on a CRO at a new company, you've got to listen and evolve your playbook to be ultimately be successful. Yeah. And, and it reminds me of the first point that we made in this list, which is that playbooks evolve, values don't. So your values can remain consistent and that's what you can lean on as you go through different pieces of change. Are there any that I did not bring up that you have a particularly strong affinity for? I mean, the one for any, any leader on this call is just your calendar determines your priorities. So often when I hear people moving into leadership for the first time, the phrase that I hear is, oh my God, I've lost control of my calendar. And that leads me to, well, are you clear in terms of what your priorities are? And that's something I'm constantly asking myself. I know that members of my team are probably snickering as they're listening to this. I'm constantly looking at my calendar and trying to match up, all right, what is and what isn't a priority? And so that's just advice that I share. That's a good one. All right, I wrap all these the same way. What does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? Yeah, so I'm sorry. I think I, I kind of jumped the gun on it earlier, but for me, grit is the outcome of having clarity about one's values. I've shared throughout this session you know, what my core values are of family, of wellness, integrity, impact. I know what's important to me. I'm confident around what fuels me. And as a result, this leads to clarity of purpose and drives effort. And when you have clarity of purpose and you're able to drive consistent effort, that's what's typically characterized as grit. And that's what grit means to me. I know Salesforce is hiring, or I can safely assume that Salesforce is hiring. Are you hiring within your role, within your organization? Do you have any open recs? If so, what are they and how might someone get a hold of you if they listen to this episode and love your leadership style? So I'm on LinkedIn. Again, Mike Wolf with two Fs. So please follow me on LinkedIn. You know, reach out to me if you're interested in being a part of our ISV global sales team. We have a number of different roles. They're everything from what we call a business builder role. And that's the recruitment of founders and entrepreneurs who want to build a business on or around the Salesforce platform to roles like partner account managers, which work with partners that have already found product market fit that we're working to help accelerate and help them get better aligned with our sales team, better aligned with our product, our industry strategy and such. So yeah, if you're interested, give me a shout. Reach out folks. Reach Mike, out. thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Really a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you and I will see you next time.